Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it gives me great pleasure today um, to have um, Kimberly Kyoge Andrews on the podcast. Um, Kim has um, selected a fantastic poem for us to think about today, um, a poem that I've um, sort of known and had somewhere knocking around in the back of my mind off and on for um, decades at this point. Um, a poem that often occurs to me as a kind of reference point when thinking about other poems or when thinking about poetry more broadly. Um, the, the poem for today is by Wallace Stevens, and it's called Man Carrying Thing. Um, in a moment, we'll hear Kim read Man Carrying Thing for us. But uh, before, we, before we get to Stevens, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today, Kim Andrews. Um, Kim is uh, an assistant professor of English at the University of Ottawa, and she's the author of um, a book that's been creating some buzz in, in our circles, I think, safe to say, recently published, The Academic Avant-Garde Poetry in the American University, which is um, it was published by Johns Hopkins University Press and is um, is given what I know of, of, of what's, um, of the work and the research and the writing that's gone into it. Um, it's going to be an important book, um, in, uh, lots of ways for many readers. And I am very eager, um, to dive into it more fully. Uh, but Kim is not, not just a scholar. She's also a poet. She's the author of two volumes of poetry. Uh, one called a brief history of fruit from the university of Akron press. And that's just such a, wonderful title <laughs> and um, and, a, and a, um, a beautiful book and a book called Between, um, which came out from Finishing Line Press. Uh, Kim uh, is the winner of the Akron Prize for Poetry, uh, New Women's Voices Award, R the Ralph Cohen Prize for Criticism, and a development grant from the ACLS. And her essays and scholarship have appeared in such publications as the Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, contemporaries at Post 45, um, Modernist Cultures, New Literary History. In fact, her um, her piece in Modernist Cultures, I think is the one, you know, Kim, that mm -hmm. is um, addressed, in, well, at least in some ways, addressed specifically to the poem that's um, at issue today. So certainly I'll put um, links to Kim's writing and information in the show notes so that you can access it more easily. Of course, you'll also find in the show notes, a link to the text of the poem for today, which is um, short and um, easy to hold, I think, in even in the device in your hand. Um, Kim's uh, creative work has appeared recently in such places as the Florida Review, the Asian American Literary Review, Poetry Northwest, and Crab Orchard Review. Um, and, you know, I... I, as I was thinking about what else to tell you about um, about Kimberly Kyoge Andrews today, I you know one line of thought that has impressed me so much, um, or one aspect of Kim's work that has impressed me so much, is you know she has this kind of research interest in the intersection of two modes of thought or ways of being with respect to poetry. Um, the academic, the scholarly, the critical, 
So we could make distinctions between those three things themselves, but put those all on one side for a moment. And um, the creative, uh, the poetic, the the practicing poet side on the other. Um, the, the period that Kim writes about, which is a period that I've written about too, and a topic that I care greatly about is how these two streams, these two ways of thinking about poetry come together, and in particular come together, let's say, in the middle of the 20th century in the United States or in the second half of the 20th century in the United States, and how that fact, the fact of poets entering the university as a kind of primary site of their professional identification, what that fact has done to literary history and to poetic history to our culture more broadly, to the extent that poetry has a place in our culture. And it does. <laughs> um, and uh, what I admire in particular about Kim's writing is the way that she is um, able to balance those two modes or impulses in her own work. So on the one hand, the kind of the project of knowing the, um, that that one traditionally thinks of as belonging in the academy, the project of research and of um, uh, uh, scholarship, and um, and how she pursues that line of thought without giving up a kind of careful and nuanced and creative attention to the way poems work, the way uh, poems often resist our attempts to know them. Um, and the um, aesthetic uh, experience that poems can provide. Um, I'm thinking of moments like, um, I know I mentioned that Kim had a piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books that was on the poet John Ashbery on learning to read uh, with, with John Ashbery. And she, there's a moment in that essay where she talks about Ashbery's gentleness and his bashfulness with respect to... Um, well, a, a kind of project of discovery or of, a, of an attempt to, to know something. Um, and it's just such a lovely um, and, and dead right evocation for my money of what makes Ashbury um, both endearing and um, different in some ways from, I think at that moment in the essay, Kim is actually comparing Ashbury to the poet that we'll be talking about today, Wallace Stevens, um, who is clearly an important poet in Ashbury's kind of prehistory, but a, a very different poet in many ways from him too. Or I think about the essay that um, the article that Kim wrote in New Literary History on the poet Jory Graham um, and um, the uh, teaching of creative writing. So that's an essay about how, how Jory Graham's career intersects with um, uh, a the kind of pedagogy of creative writing and the and the teaching practice of writing, and and that kind of historical observation that Kim makes gives her a direct line into some of what makes uh, Jory Graham a poet I love um, and a poet that I want to read and um, a person whose thoughts I want to engage with. So um, so this is just to say that. Um, in, in um, Kim, we have a perfect guest on today to talk about this poem, which I think sits at the heart of this kind of question, that is of how poetry comes together with the study of poetry um, in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Um, so today we'll be talking about Wallace Stevens' Man Carrying Thing 
and we have Kimberly Kiyoge Andrews on the podcast to do it. Kim, how are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thank you so much for that like super generous introduction, <laughs> Kamran. Uh, it makes me sound way more sort of comprehensive than I feel, um, but I'm glad that you found that in my work. Well, comprehensiveness will will come or probably should only come over over the years. And, um, it, you know, one wouldn't want to be prematurely comprehensive. But true, yes, true. I mean, it's, it, it all feels like it's 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 coming together so beautifully in in your work. And I want to congratulate you on the publication of the book. Thank you so much. There's this feels like a supremely Stevensian moment, but and I don't know if it's going to be audible on my microphone, but it's rolling past my house right now, and maybe it's deciding to park right outside of my house is an ice cream truck. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So Stevens is some, in it. Right. I, yeah. Well, I, I know the guy who drives it. He's kind of emperor like. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Stevens, well, Stevens is such a fascinating poet because, on the one, I mean, for so many reasons, but. One of them is that on the one hand, he, you know, if you read certain poems by Stevens, he seems so austere and sort of intellectual and abstract. And then there are other Stevens poems that you read, you know, where that get at what, well, it's what he said in a letter famously about the emperor of ice cream poem that that what he liked about it was that it gets at the essential gaudiness of poetry. Yes. And there is such a crazy thing for Stevens to say, I think in the, in the Stevens that we typically know. Yeah. So there is this, there is this kind of earthy and these are Stevensian terms. I realize as I'm using them, but there are, there's the sort of earthy side to him that is um, like a sensual poet and, um, and all of that. Okay. But um, I'm getting ahead of things. Um, (laughs) Kim, I'm, I'm wondering um, if, you know, um, you and I, this conversation came together sort of serendipitously and and all at once. And um, and I put the question to you as I put it to so many of my guests, or all, almost all of them. There have been a couple of cases where I've really strong-armed people into talking about a poem that I want to talk about. But the idea of the <laughs> podcast really is to invite a guest and to invite the guest to choose their own poem. And um, and you uh, you got to this choice pretty darn quickly, I think. And I and I wonder, um, since it occurs to me, at least in the first place, that um, you know, I take it that Stevens has a place to uh, uh, is has a place in your book, but that really the book is focused on a somewhat later period in um, in U.S. poetry. Um, so, um, how did you get here? Like, why this poem? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, <laughs> this poem, it, it occurred to me, and I guess I'll just be honest with listeners here in the way that I was honest with you, is that a lot of the the poets that I deal with in my book anyway, uh, write these really unwieldy sort of long poems, some of them are in prose. Um, and so when we're thinking about a podcast like this, I was like, Oh, man, like, what is what is something that I can talk about that fits in a you know you can read it quick like read it comparatively quickly and you can kind of talk about it like a whole um and right. man man carrying thing um occurred to me not only because it happens to be referenced in the book but also because i think despite the fact that my scholarly work takes place almost entirely kind of in the second part of the 20th century and into the 21st that there right. is something about Stevens that feels really foundational to my conception of what it is like to do intellectual work in poetry. And mm. so Man Carrying Thing, you know, unlike some, you know, uh, this 
sort of tendency in Stevens uh, to do this kind of philosophizing happens at length, obviously, in his longer poems, Aurora's of right. Autumn, you know, notes on a supreme fiction. But Man Carrying Thing, I think, is like, you know, it's what, seven couplets. Um, and he gets a lot of that same work done. And it's also such an interesting um, poem in the way that it encapsulates again in a really short space a lot of the sort of thematic stuff that he thematic but mm. also imagistic mm-hmm. insofar as the poem has images which i guess we'll talk about later yeah yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah we'll want to talk about that it's an Indeed. interesting question yeah uh that he he brings up over and over and over again um and so i'm not a stephen scholar i'm not even i'm not even a modernist and so my range of reference regarding stevens i think might be uh i, I fear that it it might be a little narrow but Stevens, you know, nevertheless, I continue to be an ardent Stevens supporter, uh, maybe yeah. to my own detriment. I don't know. Well, maybe there's also um, an opportunity here or a responsibility we have to lay some further cards on the table, which is though, though, um, that which namely that you and I um, share a, an educational path, at least to some yeah. extent, that is, we got our PhDs from the same university, um, Yale University, which, um, though we we didn't overlap there, um, Stevens, it's sort of hard to be a poetry person at Yale and not to and not to have Stevens matter quite a lot to you, and maybe in an outsized way to people outside. I mean, I guess the only reason I bring it up, Kim, is because I know you have this interest in, you know institutions of higher education and the ways yeah. in which they've shaped um, poetry in the second half of the 20th century. And um, Yale and maybe Harvard to some extent seem like places where Stevens has a kind of outsized influence, whereas in other places, famously, Stevens is less significant. He is um, less significant. Well, and yeah. the funny thing about, about you know, obviously he um, lived in Hartford, but was in New Haven a lot. I mean, he's, he's just such a Connecticut poet. It's interesting that right. you say that though, because I think that was one of those things. And I kind of, I don't know, I felt like I was perhaps a particularly like a oblivious graduate student, but it only did occur <laughs> to me later that it would have been really difficult to spend six, you know, or seven years in New Haven and not kind of wind up thinking about Stevens. Um, yeah. I just didn't think I was doing it at the time. I thought it was a choice sure. that like made sense thematically as opposed to just like me being in New Haven for years. Sure. Yeah, no, nobody wants to think that they've <laughs> <laughs> that their choices have been made for them. Um, and I'm not I don't I'm of course I'm being um glib here. I yeah. I don't mean to suggest that yours were. Um, no. But and I I know plenty of people who've lived in New Haven and who don't care about Stevens. <laughs> But nevertheless, um, nevertheless, I think it's hard to be anyway. in, in the English department that we were in. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, maybe we can think about that some more as we go on, but we probably shouldn't get much further without um, giving our audience a chance to listen to the poem. So it's, yeah. it's quite a short poem. Um, as we've said before, I want to, and I want to alert people to that again so that you don't miss it, you know, as it, as, as Kim is about to read it. And remember also, of course, that you can look on, um, to the, um, to the text of the poem and the link that I provide. But, um, Kim, would you read Man Carrying Thing for us? Absolutely. Man Carrying Thing. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Illustration. A brune figure in winter evening resists identity. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. 
accept them then as secondary parts not quite perceived of the obvious whole uncertain particles of the certain solid the primary free from doubt things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night out of a storm of secondary things a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real we must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. Kim, thanks so much. So, um, so that's man carrying thing. And as, um, as you, I think mentioned earlier on, and for people maybe who aren't looking at it, the poem is in couplets. Maybe that's um, something that we'll want to talk about at some point. Think about why. I mean, they're not rhyming couplets though maybe they do things like rhyme at times um um so okay we can we can come back to that i guess also um maybe just useful for people who really know nothing at all about stevens worth worth it to say we've been talking about him as a 20th um, century poet and it's true that he wrote his poetry um, published his poetry in the 20th century, but Stevens was born in the 19th century, born in 1879, lived to 1955, lived mostly in Hartford, Connecticut, where he was famously not only a poet, but an, an executive at an insurance company at, at the Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company, as I think it was then called. Yep. Um, this poem, Man Carrying Thing, was first published in book form in Transport to Summer, um, which came out towards the end of Stevens's life in 1947. So maybe that places our um, listeners um, a little more um, precisely in Stevens's life. Um, but when I said um, before, you know, while I was introducing you that this is a poem that has um, knocked around in my head for all these years and that it's a poem that I think about as a kind of point of reference and thinking about poetry more broadly, I, really what I had in mind was its first sentence, right? which is, um, I mean, it's so aphoristic <laughs> that, that Stephen's reappropriated it as an aphorism. I th- I actually, I'm not sure if that's the right order, if it was first in the poem and then in his adagio, which is this sort of collection of I think that's right. one-liners, was... basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but that line, the poem must resist the intelligence, and for people who aren't looking, there's a, so the line break comes at that word. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think we have necessarily when we read poems to begin with the first line but in this case i think one really ought to um what is it that like to help us understand some of the complexities that are at work kim in the first line and a half it's almost the first couplet but interestingly not quite the the entire first couplet of the poem it's the first sentence of the poem it's the first sentence of the poem um it's the first sentence of a poem that actually only contains uh like four sentences right there's a there's two short there's like a couple of short sentences in the middle of the poem is like a big long sentence and then there's there's short sentences at the end again Mm. or a short sentence at the end again um but the yeah the poem the funny thing about the first stanza of this poem is that it contains a line break 
right after the intelligence that would that seems like a gimmick you know the poem must resist the intelligence and then there's like the gotcha line break gotcha almost mm. successfully and so that mm. turn there's a kind of double turn we're doing it in the in the line break and then we're doing it with the thought and one of the things that's interesting to me about those that first sentence is the way that it can be read in two separate ways depending on how you take intelligence which is to say that i've always read it in terms of the poem must resist the intelligence like of the poet almost successfully so in order to write poetry you must resist your own intelligence that's almost successfully but the more classic reading of the poem is the poem must resist the intelligence of the reader right almost successfully that's the more i think standard reading i have this weird heterodox reading of the first line okay well i'm happy to play like boring straight man heterodox <laughs> or um you know um tier, regular more interesting yeah, Team yeah regular reading yeah right so okay so in let's let's maybe start with the more boring reading and mm-hmm. work our way up to your more interesting one um but just so for people who aren't quite apprehending what you called the double turn of the line break and the thing that's happening with the syntax of the sentence. Um, maybe with that first reading in mind, walk us through it a bit, Kim. Sure. So what, what would, what would we, what should we take from it? If that's the reading we're following? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, the, it's not the more boring reading. I think it just is the one <laughs> that seems more obvious to people mm. and clearly did not seem more obvious to me. And I don't know whether that's because I'm a poet um, or what. Yeah. But... It's so interesting. <laughs> The, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully thinks in that reading thinks of the poem as an object that is meeting the reader, right, in some kind of imaginary sense, uh, in some sort mm-hmm. of imaginary space, rather. And the poem is performing a kind of work on the reader, but the reader is also trying to do something to the poem. So when you come as a reader right. to the text, what is it that we do to text? Now, obviously we're, you know, two professors talking to another. So we have a really specific sense of what we do when we come to texts. Um, mm, and one of the interesting things about this being a later poem of Stevens mm-hmm. is that this would have been, I think either during or after the period when he was really thinking about, you know, creating the poetry chair at Harvard or whatever he was he had a lot of discourse with like academic readers as it were and so I think there is this sense that poems meet these readers and they have to kind of fight with them a little bit because there's this sense in which the reader is going to try to pull something out of the poem that's going to try to encapsulate or try to say what the poem means. Like I'm I'm making air quotes with my hands. Yeah. yeah. We heard it. I think. Yeah. We heard those air quotes, right? We heard the air quotes. And so the, the poem has to resist that, Uh but not quite. It has to let something in. It has to give something up to the reader. um, Yeah. That isn't merely impressionistic. Yeah. So let's um, wait. Yeah, that's great. Let's and let's let's stay with this for a minute longer at least because a couple of things. One thing that I just would want to observe and I don't know when he wrote the poem, I have to say, but if it was published in 47, so let's say it was couldn't have been written too long before that since by that right. point in his career he was publishing fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it it's more or less um 
um, contemporary with a kind of change in the way poetry was being talked about in universities. And what I oh, have yeah, in mind absolutely. here is the development of the new criticism. Yeah. You know, in the late, you know, well, it depends on how you date the kind of prehistory of the new criticism, but let's say sort of firmly in place in American universities yeah. in a way that Stevens would have noticed um, by the Almost late certainly. 30s, you know, yeah. by the mid to late 30s. Um, and the new criticism for people who aren't familiar with the term, and, you know, this would be a whole other podcast to really, you know, series of conversations to get into the various things that term might might be taken to indicate. I think a, a an accurate enough kind of thumbnail version of it is that, well, the new criticism informs indeed the kind of project that this podcast is still doing, which is to say like the practice of close reading, whereby you take a poem and perhaps if you're doing new criticism in the um, most kind of orthodox sense, which isn't what the podcast does because this podcast sort of swerves left and right in all kinds of ways, but you'd really only be paying attention to the poem, to the definitions of the words in the poem. You'd be moving line by line through it and you'd be trying to, um, through some kind of um, display of your own ingenuity or um, wit or um, intelligence to um, extract from it some kind of meaning or more often the case, some kind of ambiguity or multiple sets of meanings or something. And um, yet also a kind of unity, right? Like that was yeah. the big thing about the American New Critics in particular was thinking about thematic unity and like the poem is like a whole Perfect. That's right. Um that's right, which is why, you know, for the new critics, um, the the kind of preferred kind of verbal artifact, and that's a term they would have used to, to take on with that method is like the short lyric poem, the kind of poem you had to choose for this podcast for some of the same reasons, because like the scene of the new criticism was, was just as often the classroom as it was. Um, the essay or the article or what have you, or the book. That was developed as a pedagogical method, right? right. It was developed precisely in order to do things in, with poems in classrooms. Okay. So um, so now I want to think what well, sort of keeping still on the track of this um, more kind of um, commonplace, I, I won't call it boring, but way of reading that first line and a half, which is to say the, the poem is resisting the intelligence of a reader, let's say almost successfully your if i if i heard you right kim your way of interpreting the word almost which is the first word of the second line of the poem and stevens is the kind of poet who for whatever it's worth is still like he likes to capitalize his lines he does and he comes at a moment where poets don't have to do that anymore but no. he does yes it's a kind of is this anyway. one of the reasons why people associate ashbury with stevens because ashbury also like insistently did that despite the fact that nobody oh, else seemed funny. to be doing it I, I think probably lots of reasons but anyway, okay <laughs> we'll come back to that okay anyway anyway sorry you if i was hearing you right kim you were taking the word almost to mean that well the the reader the reader wants something from the poem. The poem, almost like a um, like a coy mistress or whatever, is, is like holding the the reader off at arm's length. You know, resisting his advances. Um, sorry, I say his because I offered the coy mistress scenario, but uh, you know, resisting resisting the reader's advances. 
but it it's almost successful in your way of reading it because something of the poem can't hold itself off that the reader will apprehend some part of the poem um and it, it it occurs to me that there might be other ways of taking the almost too. Like it might be, in other words, that the resistance works for a while until it doesn't work at all anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, that is the almost might not be. Um, I don't know if it's quite spatial in the first sense, but something but like temporal. that. Whereas in the second sense, it's temporal, right? It's like I can yeah. hold you off and hold you off and hold you off, and then finally you take you know you overwhelm my defenses right it gives um, in. yeah yeah so um so for, was i here is that you know wh- i guess what do you think of that um, no i think that that's yeah. i mean that's probably the better reading actually um i think those things can coexist mm-hmm. in that like you know even well or maybe not coexist but but that there is a point before everything collapses where you have this kind of like back and forth where the poem is still resisting, but the, but the reader's sort of sense of it is sort of starting to become clear. There's that kind of like back and forth moment in that kind of temporal progression that you're talking about. That makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you get a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then, and then, yeah. And I mean, I think, the the only thing I'd say about the sort of the, the full end of the temporal reading is that I don't think you ever get well. It's hard to say. I don't I don't know whether or not you get to a point where like the poem just sort of opens itself up completely right. to the intelligence, um, right. and that's I think maybe part of where my reading comes in, which is where yeah. you have this you know this kind of very melancholy back and forth between what what we can think and what we can know. Oh, yeah. And what we say or write. Yeah. And, and how uh, what we think yeah. and what we can know makes itself known only ever incompletely in language. Okay. So this does bring us to your way of reading those first two lines. So now let's Maybe. talk about, yeah, yeah. No, I want to, I want to, I want to hear you think about that. I mean, I guess some of what invites um, your reading um, or your first way of reading, since I suppose you're willing to entertain the possibility that it could go either way. Mm. Um, some of what invites that possibility is Stevens's kind of um, abstract way of speaking at the beginning of this poem anyway. The poem must the resist poem. the intelligence. I mean, he's not, um, because that, that language feels so abstract, it, it sort of makes it available, I think, for taking it from one end of the telescope or the other. But so what would it mean for the poem to resist the intelligence of the poet almost successfully? Yeah, this to me, I don't know, maybe maybe listeners will find this to be like a completely implausible reading of these lines. But But for me, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. There's a kind of mythos of poetic composition um, that I think mm-hmm. obviously very much persists today, which is a kind of muse style right. scene of composition where some, you know, and, and the muse style means literally something else is just speaking through you, right? So you're mm-hmm. not a composer so much as you are just kind of a mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the poem as a kind of type of inspiration doesn't really require thinking it requires kind of expressing in a way um and maybe we can talk about this later because i think one of the things that's so interesting about stevens is how like inexpressive he is actually and in that reading right of what poetry 
you know, what writing poetry entails. Um, there's almost no intelligence involved at all. It's kind of this sort of inspirational, um, kind of inspirational act. And there's part of Stevens that I think is quite enamored of that idea, that kind of muse-like idea, but he right. resolute- the, po- the poet who's inspired by a muse isn't an intelligent poet, right? That poet is just yeah. sort of a medium. In the medium, but right. and it's not necessarily. I don't want that to be pejorative, right? It's just right. we're talking about two different faculties here. Sure. And so, you know, I mean, you can make it pejorative. I think, you know, yeah, um, yeah. In, in my less generous moments, I do. But I think in this case, it's like, no. If you have this sort of the, the muse model, is no, you are not a quote intelligent being. You are, yeah, you are an inspired one. And in fact, um, your intelligence might get in the way. Indeed, which is exactly right. where you find the beginning of this poem. The poem right. must resist the intelligence in order to allow the, the sort of kind of pure expression to sort of do its thing. I and see. then you have the infamous line break almost successfully. And I think right. one of the things that makes me, um, you know, partial to that, this reading of the, the first part of this poem is because you see this everywhere in Stevens, his sort of old school romantic desire mm. Um, towards a kind of expressive quality in poetry and what we wind up with, which is maybe some of the most obviously abstractly philosophical poetry uh, of the 20th century, where he just can't stop himself from thinking. He's just constantly thinking. And this is an ars poetica in a lot of ways, right? I mean, this this poem falls into the genre of like poetry about poetry. Um, And so he's already kind of doomed from the start, even by starting with this aphorism, he's already screwed himself. Like he already has succumbed <laughs> to the intelligence that his his poetry is, you know, that he is sort of, I think, disingenuously trying to trying to resist. I see. So, um, well, maybe if the first, so even taking your way of reading, which I don't, I mean, I'm totally persuaded by it, um, or. You know, and 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 you've you've changed for me the way I will um, read and think about this poem because I think I think you've you've put your finger on something that's so right. It must have been a preoccupation of his, um, and must you know not to zoom too far out of the frame, but just for a moment, must be a preoccupation more broadly of poets in our time who might often feel like they know too much. Yeah. Um, or like knowledge or intelligence might get in the way of their, po- I mean, I mean that in particular as poets have, you know, are all in universities now or almost all, right. yeah. um, but, but to, to come back, um, um, to come back to the poem, if, if we didn't have the almost successfully, but if it were just the poem must resist the intelligence, then you would have to take it as a failure to live up to its own standards. Yeah. Because, you know, there is a would, lie on Stevens. Yeah. Part. Right. But to say that, so to say that it must resist the intelligence almost successfully, if we take it as like, that's the, the poet who must resist the intelligence that almost successfully, then I, then the sense I'm getting from you is that, you know, Stevens there might be telling himself something like, well, you have to try and you will fail, but it will be important to try nonetheless, because that will change something, you know, that will enable or unlock some aspect of what, you know, passes for inspiration by the muse in the middle of the 20th century in the United yeah. States. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. I think it's, it's a, it's a remnant 
um, maybe remnants the wrong word, because I think it was quite a strong line of desire in Stevens throughout his entire sort of poetic life, is that um, it's a, it is a romantic desire, I think, like capital R. Um, right. Romantic, this, this, you know, even if you take, even if you remember to read the last part of Wordsworth's sentence about, you know, spontaneous overflow of, uh, of feelings that have been recollected in, you know, that have uh, in tranquility, in yeah. tranquility, right? Re- recollected yeah. in tranquility. So, like, you have to actually, you have to think about them. So, even the romantics, I think, you know, knew better. But mm-hmm. I, there is definitely a sense, and you get this from Stevens's letters too, about you know when he was at university, like he was like, ah, I hate the classroom. I really like sitting around yeah. in the woods. And so there is this deeply, I think, if even if sort of like slightly falsely, romantic sensibility about Stevens. Um, but yeah. his, he's constantly getting, he's constantly kind of like out, outthinking himself or overthinking himself. You're right. It's totally a romantic. Um, mode. I mean, I was thinking of the um, the line that Keats writes in a letter where he says that um, uh, he's been thinking that if poetry comes not um, not as naturally as leaves to a tree, it had better not come at all. But then he immediately right. follows that statement by saying, "And you can see from what I'm doing right now how far I am from the center of that remark." Like, right? That's an ideal which one fails to meet, and that yeah. failure is the sort of predicament out of which the poem that one has written has come. It's the generative predicament, right? Right. It is the absolutely the generative predicament. It's the generative predicament of like basically Stevens's whole of would be my argument. Yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) great. Okay. So, uh, and it, well, and in this case we move right from that kind of famous first sentence, (laughs) um, that line and a half. And then, as I was saying before, before we get to the second couplet, so with the last word of the first couplet, is the word illustration, colon, and then right line break and stanza break. So then what follows, I suppose, is an illustration. Uh, well, I don't know. Illustration yeah. in what sense, Kim, right? So illustration <laughs> might mean like a, an illustration in a children's book. It might mean a, a philosophical kind of example of yeah, the thing. E.g. Yeah, right. So how do you take that word and how do you take what follows the colon since at some point we're going to have to move on beyond the first two lines of the poem. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Uh, illustration I take relatively simply to be the kind of illustration you would find in a, in a philosophical text, right? It's definitely an example given. Um, the thing that's interesting about this poem is that then you have a couple of break, right? So illustration, colon, and then you have a bunch of white space. So you're like, okay, what's going to happen next? And what you get is just a reiteration of the title kind of you get Mm. a guy and you get a thing and so it's not illustrating much of anything other than Mm. the like other than the the inability other than the inability of the poet to get back to that sort of romantic sense of you know maybe like describing nature or being very close to nature and language or being able to describe um the external world accurately in language and so you have this moment where it's like illustration a broom figure in winter evening so you get you actually you have a figure in winter evening so that's fine that you get you have this like moment of you can picture that kind of but then Mm -hmm. 
the rest of the line, it says it resists. So you have the resist again, line break identity, resist identity. So it's like, okay, we can, we can see the figure, but you, it doesn't resolve in anything. And then the thing he carries resists. Again, you have a line break. So both lines of the second right. couplet end in the word resist, resists next, the most necessitous sense, which is a much kind of um, more nebulous thing that maybe we can talk about because I, I don't really know what to, I've never really known what to do with the sort of most necessitous sense other than the kind of, yeah. again, romantic concept of necessity, um, capital N necessity. It's almost an impossible phrase to say to the most necessitous sense. It's like a real tongue twister of all those, um, those S's and T's and N's that all those sounds that, that are produced there. But, um, right. So you said that, yeah, illustration here must be a kind of example in a kind of, um, philosophical argument. And yet it is also kind of an image as you suggested, right? So a brune figure in winter evening resists identity. Um, Am I hearing you right that at least the one kind of sense or maybe a primary sense in which to take that resisting of identity meaning is to mean rather um, that that this man remains anonymous? Like you said, he doesn't resolve into a kind of clearer image or something. Like we can't pin down his identity. Is that right? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, and so that the image winds up being a kind of stand in almost it's not you know when I tell okay so I'm gonna digress here into a sort of pedagogical story because obviously I spend a lot of time teaching students how to write poems Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I'm constantly telling them is that you have to use like quote-unquote real images right and they're always like what do you well what do you mean by real images and I'm like well it has to be sort of specific to something that you've uh, it doesn't have to be but like you know a lot of poetry is based on specific images that are sort of particular to your own observation right so if it is a mm. cup of tea like we need to see sort of your cup of tea um right. and here you have the poet saying okay a brune figure in winter evening is sort of refusing to become real in that specific sense, right? And in, right. in that, like, it's just it's just a figure. And so it is, yeah. And so it, it doesn't mean that we have to name the guy Bob or whatever, but <laughs> simply <laughs> that you Wally. have, yeah, Bob, Bob the Broom figure, mm-hmm. um, that you have the poet sort of moving towards specificity of imagery and then stopping themselves right resists identity Mm. the thing he carries again you never know what the thing is it could be anything the thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense right and so like that kind of refuses to sort of um do what it's supposed to do which is cohere into a um into an image that can then i guess if we go back to the sort of the the front of the poem i know (laughs) you didn't want to do this no no it's cool refuses to cohere into something that can meet the reader um, um, and be like, you know, here's something specific that then you can interpret in all of its sort of imagistic fullness. Uh-huh. I see. Right. Um, so the reader here is like the, um, like the, um, the figure in a, mo- in a movie, like a spy movie or something who sees a photograph of something and wants to keep like enhancing the photograph. Until right. It, can... it just refuses. To... Yeah. It, yeah. You're just not going to get a high no. res enough. 
image to be able to do perform that act of identification. Right. Um, I guess the thing that I wonder is like, you know, as we talked about at great length, so we don't need to necessarily rehearse that here in the first line and a half, that kind of resistance was almost successful. Whereas the resistances that are named in the third and fourth lines of the poem, they don't, yeah, they either, either they're total or the almost successful nature of them is left implied or something. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Right. That's a a good point. Right. It's like either they're almost successful or they're completely successful and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not clear. Yes. So, and then, uh, sorry, just because it um, has always stuck out like a sore thumb to me and maybe does to our readers too. um, It it maybe feels like a characteristically Stevensian kind of moment when he calls the figure a Brune figure, (laughs) um, Brune, B-R-U-N-E, which, you know, Stevens was a poet who thought about French poetry and the French language now and then or often enough. So that would be like a French adjectival form of brown. Brown. Maybe the brown figure, a brown figure. But then why use the French word... And why is the figure brown to begin with? And I know, and maybe this is a place just to sort of um, flag also for our listeners that, you know, Stevens is a poet who um, in some ways seems very kind of central to the story of American poetry um, or of English language poetry, in particular in the 20th century. In um, increasingly over the years, Stevens has been a poet um, whose legacy has rankled for, I think, good reason, readers who have objected to the racism that we find in certain poems by Stevens and in um, certain letters and prose statements of his. And of course, when you detect um, racism in its explicit forms in one place, you know, you suspect that it is a more pervasive kind of um, ideology that undergirds, um, you know, things in which it isn't announcing itself. Right. So is, is this figure Brown in some kind of racialized way or how should we understand the brownness of the figure in the third line? Um, Kim, do you have a way of thinking about that? I think that, you know, it is, yeah, it is absolutely important that folks are reckoning with Stevens's sort of long history of uh, explicit racism um, and the fact that the brownness in this poem gets attached to like a human being um, is definitely one of those things that seems to announce itself as something that could be could be read in that way, particularly because you have, you know, the brune figure in winter evening like resists identity. So like, you know, the brown mm. figure refuses to coalesce into a person. Right. Um, but is instead a kind of stock figure. But is a stock of, figure, right? right? Mm. Like I, you know, and I don't, my, I guess, hesitation there is that I don't, I haven't figured out a way in which that helps us read the poem in any way that makes any sense. I think for, mm me that sort of that brune figure and this is where i i um, am consonant with uh so timothy donnelly at the um the Mm. poetry foundation did a long reading of this poem and he notes that um uh, brune is obviously french for brown but also la brune it like as a noun i think is like like the dusk maybe Mm, or like yeah yeah. yeah, it's like kind of like a twilight 
sort of thing. And so again, that, that time of day where you kind of can't see anything very well, where your vision kind of goes. And again, it announces itself as a a winter evening poem. Um, And so I think that, that just makes more sense, I think, than a kind of racialized reading of this of this yeah. line. Um, well, I wonder if we is, necessarily yeah. have to choose between those two possibilities, but right. you know, but there might be a sense in which the one thing is kind of giving Stevens license to do the other or something. But, Possible, but yeah, that that idea. Of, well, I guess it brings us back to the resisting of the intelligence almost successfully of the sense of things kind of um, becoming indistinct or yeah. um, unnameable. Um, and in, in any case, you know, as Stevens moves on here in the poem, we get this, um, very long sentence, um, you know, sort of after he's, he said that the Brune figure resists identity and the thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. And I'm, I'm not sure I have much, know really what to say about what the most <laughs> necessitous sense is either. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can come back to that if something, if we have something, yeah. um, that occurs to us. And then he says, accept them then as secondary. And then there's this long parenthetical, which sort of spans, um, you yeah, know, the six lines or something. The sentence itself is really tiny. Like most of it is in parentheses, which is right. Yeah. Right. So if we were to ignore the parentheses, that sentence would read, accept them then as secondary, a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real which is fascinating actually but but we can't of course no. in in the end ignore the parenthetical um and here it seems to me kim like something you know like the title of the poem is almost like a um i wonder what you would say if a student turned in a poem with this title where you might you know at first i mean unless you i mean so let's say stevens had never used the title right? right and you were seeing it for the first time you might think either they're doing something clever or this is just a terrible title. Like this is the, you know, they may as well, you know, it's like when a student turns in their a paper to me and it's called the title of the paper is like first paper, you know, it just seems like, wait a minute. Right. Do something here. Like it's so um, it's almost like um, Mad Libs. Like it wants you to fill in the more, you know, the more particular versions of those things Um, within those parentheses. This is what I was trying to say. Mm. I'm getting the sense that there is like a really kind of um, countervailing spirit in this poem, countervailing to the spirit of the title, in other words, and maybe of those first few lines, where suddenly the scene is is quite vivid and yes. um, moving. And um, I mean, moving in two senses, like there's motion, but also it has a kind of emotional heft yes. to it. It sort of moves me. Um, so it's been a while since, um, we've, we've heard the lines read aloud and for people who aren't looking, Kim, I'm just going to read that sentence Mm -hmm. as a whole and then ask you to say whatever you'd like to observe about it or whatever you're hearing in that sentence in the parentheses or whatever else. So, um, here's the sentence, accept them then a secondary parts, not quite perceived of the obvious whole uncertain particles of the certain solid, the primary free from doubt, things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night, out of a storm of secondary things, a horror of thoughts that suddenly 
are real. So, Kim, what do what do you notice in that sentence? Um, I don't know. Start anywhere. <laughs> I think your introduction was perfect in that contained in this parenthetical is the sort of most a the most specifically evocative piece of imagery, and b the place where Stevens kind of lets the emotional hammer of the poem drop. Right, mm. you have. And both of those things um, come towards the end of the parenthetical. Things yeah. floating, and then you have this simile, right? So it's a simile, fine. But on the other half of the simile, like, and then you get this very specific image, the first hundred flakes of snow. That That's so weirdly it's particular. It's so weird. <laughs> and, you know, so you imagine, like, exactly 100 flakes of snow sort of, like, floating around in the air. Oh and this God. is, of course, what I... Yeah, what I what I tell my students to do is like give me a hundred flakes of snow. Like I want not ninety nine, not one hundred and one, but like a hundred flakes of snow. Except of nobody s- in the real world measures no. snow in that way. <laughs> right? Of course not. It is the strangest moment of, and, and so you know, it's like way, an artifact. It's like almost like a snow globe or something. You know, totally, yeah, absolutely a snow globe, and absolutely is a product of the imagination, like Mm. quote unquote, merely of the imagination of this is the major tension in the poem is that Mm -hmm. hundred flakes of snow is an impossible image. And it's kind of the only image you get. Mm. And so then you get the, then, then the sort of pathos comes in out of a storm, we must endure all night. And so you get this sense of like this kind of temporal lengthening of the Mm. poem. Um, The hundred flakes of snow presage like way more flakes of snow and then you get the second part of the metaphor which is well what are the flakes of snow it's like well the flakes of snow because it came out of my imagination because nobody counts to 100 when they're looking at flakes of snow Mm -hmm. the flakes of snow are in fact the secondary things and the secondary things are poetic images just full stop Mm. like anything that you can try and pin down in language what you're trying to pin down a language is like the totality of the sort of external world. You are constantly surrounded by a blizzard of Mm. images, a blizzard of potential images. And you're kind of as a poet sort of sitting in there trying, sitting there trying to endure this Mm -hmm. um, and never really being able to pin them down. The Bruin figure resists identity. The thing he carries resists sensibility. Like you can't, you can't do it. The only thing you can do is imagine counting, counting a hundred flakes of snow. Mm. Um, and that sort of, you know, the horror of thoughts. And I like the way that you read that because <laughs> instead of it being like a horror of thoughts, like as in like, I have a horror of thoughts, you were like a horror of thoughts, like a herd of cows. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't stop hearing it that way in my own head. And so um, I, it's funny to me that you picked up on that. But yeah, I was thinking of it as like a murder of crows or right. something like. Um, yeah, it's, you know, and so like a group of thoughts is called a horror, which mm-hmm. when you are a deeply philosophical poet means that you're kind of running scared all the time and i think again that's the generative force in stevens but we should say what what it what the, what it more what that phrase more plausibly means since i no we shouldn't that, that's <laughs> it, it would mean like being a like uh that one has a horror um of sorry i'm just repeating the phrase now but the it the, sorry we're taking the of in two different senses right, right. so yeah like a fear of thoughts like um that is mm-hmm. um a, a kind of a stance of recoiling with respect to the presence of thoughts that um, well and the, yeah. the rest of the line is important right that suddenly are real yeah 
And you know, I, th- I think of that Ashbury line that I know you and I have discussed, I think, in a different context, which is the snow that came when we wanted it to snow. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's as though here, like, okay, sorry. Um, the, the, like the, the, um, the poetic image has somehow, through some act of magic, um, conjured a reality that one then lives in. Right. Yeah. And that, that you're... I don't know, maybe maybe I'm going off the rails here, but like the idea that thoughts could supplant that, right? The thoughts that suddenly are real. So like that's where you live now. Like that's, you know. Mm. Um like a careful what you wish for kind of policy. Indeed. You know, indeed. Or the sort of recognition that the act of poetry is always rendering the external world through the mind into language and so the reality of poetry is the reality of language which sounds of course like a deeply obvious thing to say but when you have stevens's kind of romantic sensibilities like that is a kind of horror it's like oh man i'm just like constantly putting something between myself and anything that i want to describe and we're all putting stuff between ourselves and things that we want to describe because we have to be able to describe those things in language you know it's sorry it makes me think of something that's only sort of tangentially related, but that fact and who knows if it, I mean, I don't know. I shouldn't say who knows. I should just say, I don't know if it's true, but I take it that it is that one hears reported from um, psychologists, which is that the way memory works is like, you're not retrieving a memory from some data bank in which you've stored it. You're like redescribing yeah. each time. And so each time you're getting in, in each time you remember a kind of beloved memory, you're in fact, encountering Re- your you're your recreating it and get and it's in one way of thinking getting further <clears throat> and further from the thing itself yeah um yeah which is a really more i mean so it makes you want to not remember the thing you know because to you try and keep it truthful to keep in it, some way right and i and and you know and so for stevens you know who's always thinking about the relationship between the imagination and reality um you know, he, he has that line somewhere where he says, you know, he talks about the, the, the quote unquote, the necessary angel. And he talks about the angel yes. of reality and the angel of imagination. And he says, most, I'm paraphrasing badly here, I th- or, I, but I think uh, I'm getting the gist of it right. He says that like, um, people think that the, that the necessary angel is the angel of the imagination and um, nine out of 10 days, they're right, but it's the 10th day that counts or something, right? right? You know, which is, um, yeah. You know, Stevens wants to come back to the real, like he ha- he's, yes. you know, um, but, but here it's as though the thoughts, the thoughts have become suddenly real. And that yeah. is itself a horrifying development Yeah, that we yeah. have to endure. So that gets us to the last couplet of the, I was poem. about but to do, say do that you have, then you immediately yeah. get to the last couplet with, because, you know, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this poem is the way that it, um, you know, we probably won't have time to discuss the sort of like the couplet form, but there's so much. We repetition. have a little bit of time. If yeah, it's, it, feel free to you know. Yeah, there's so share much repetition in this poem that ultimately doesn't have any images in it, and so you have mm. this like, um, the must endure all night. We must endure our thoughts all night. Um, you know, the obvious hole, the bright obvious. There's just there's so much like weird recursivity. And so you get out of the parenthetical horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. And then you get to the last couplet in which he basically just it almost verbatim repeats the thing that he just said, which is we must endure our thoughts all night. 
Um, it's the thing I'm, I tell students not to do in their in their writing is to just don't conclusion. just repeat. Yeah, don't yeah. tell me something new at the end. But he, you're right, and and it's so interesting because in both of those cases, he's he's repeating things from. It's like he's extracting them from the parentheses, and now they're in the. You know, I'm I'm imagining like a kind of sentence being diagrammed here. They're they're up at the highest plane. You know, at the main kind of trunk of the sentence right yeah yeah and they and they, now they're suddenly in the sort of the maiden body of the um <clears throat> of the poem but of course he's not you know somebody writing a five paragraph essay and so he does the sort <laughs> of incon- <laughs> the inconclusion move we must endure our thoughts all night until and then you get this confounding last line until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold um, which, mm. along with the first line of the poem, is, I think, one of his more well-known lines. Um, mm. And it's a really difficult line to know what to do with, um, as I sort of mentioned to you before yeah. we started <laughs> this podcast. Uh, the most obvious reference here is to a poem that is in Harmonium. Um, in fact, an early poem in Harmonium. So one of the first poems mm. that's, you know, appears in Stevens's of the snowman mm-hmm. uh and the last line of that you which know, isn't like frosty the snowman it's like it's um, definitely not it's like a man made of snow somehow literally yeah. like a, just a guy right. made of snow and just so that i don't misquote it um you know the last stanza of that poem is for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is um i can't mm. think of these these poems as separate right main carrying thing always reminds me of, mm. of the snowman mm. mm-hmm. um i think that this is something that i've wanted to talk about like this whole time so i'm glad i can bring it up now oh, is that i think that <laughs> stevens is one of our great poets of winter yeah right he's just constantly now obviously we have you know academic discourse at Havana and like, you know, the idea of order at Key West. And so like, sometimes he's like, obviously in the tropics as well, but I think where Stevens is at his most Stevensian, it's always freezing out. Right. Yeah. And, and often that, that, that sort of, um, that climate of his sort of pairs with the, the kind of the, the impulse towards abstraction. Absolutely. Right. Right. And it's one of the reasons why I think like Stevens is a really, uh, people love to hate Stevens. I think for for partially for this reason, he is a cold poet, or like he mm-hmm. seems like. I think there are lots of ways in which you can read him as not being this way. I I certainly do myself. But you know, you read poems like The Snowman, you read poems like this, and and it's just it feels like a, you know, if you're not paying a lot of attention to that kind of the beauty and the um, deep conflictedness of those sort of that first hundred flakes of snow and the sort of, we must endure this. And then the, we, right. We must endure this storm all night. Um, if you kind of look at the sort of the, the sort of general sense of something like main carrying thing, it does seem like a like he's a little bit like a brain in a jar. Um, Mm, and so mm -hmm. that there is this kind of cold sensibility to him, the kind of cold calculating sense of like what, what poetry Mm -hmm. is, what poetry should be. I, you know, like I am a poet of sort of propositions, um, etc. Kind of, you know, yeah. doubling down on the kind of like enlightenment subjectivity thing, which is, as we all know, a kind of like white man's subjectivity, right? Um, the neutral body, right? And yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons why people <laughs> people don't like Stevens. Uh, but I mm. personally, yeah, winter is my favorite season. 
<laughs> so I all this sort of like thinking about what the cold can do and what and now that you're in of, like, Canada. Forget Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is like the that this is the sort of joke line in the end of my bio is right. I'm an American living in Canada, but I'm actually enjoying the really cold winters. Yeah, um, is that there is you know I'm literally I'm looking outside my window right now, and what I can see is like a 12 foot snowbank. Oh man, <laughs> that is what I'm looking at. It's this huge white wall, but it's reflecting the sunlight. Right, it's reflecting the sunlight into my room. Mm-hmm. It is making everything brighter. Mm. Um. And the way that a kind of that cold, you know, has like a kind of crystalline quality um, is something that is yeah. very clearly near and dear to Stephen's heart. And so you have this sort of bright, obvious standing yeah. motionless in cold is, I think, rather than I think the classic, you know, <clears throat> uh, reading of something like the snowman is this sort of like deep, you know, sort of cold rationality, like a man made of snow, like without mm. emotions or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the bright, obvious standing motionless and cold, I think for Stevens is an image of great beauty, mm. um, even if also terrifying. Well, something that's obvious etymologically, right? Doesn't it mean it like stands in the way, right? It's sort of like um, um, it, 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 it also, I mean, it's interesting to me to, to hear you and moving Kim to hear you describe the beauty for you of winter. And I, I guess I admit, um, that's um, beauty must lie in the eye of the beholder because I don't, I, <laughs> I don't see that beauty. I'm in the minority. As well. I yeah, know, no, no. I know. But, you know, and it, and it's interesting to hear you talk about Stevens as a, you know, the Stevens at his most Devensian as being a winter poet. Um, and I think that's right. But, you know, and then I'm immediately thinking of like summer Stevens too. And mm-hmm. what it brings me to is this other thought I've had off and on about poetry which is that more than like winter poets and summer poets or spring poets and fall poets, sometimes I think there are like solstice poets and mm. equinoctial poets. Mm. That is, there are poets of like extreme states. Yeah. And there yeah. are poets that are more interested in like transitional states. Yeah. And I think for me, Stevens is a real equinox, uh, sorry, is a real solstice poet, you know? Absolutely. Right. And he maybe likes the, that. the poet we just talked about on the last episode, James Schuyler, is a real like um, equinox kind of poet, you mm-hmm. know, a poet of like um, of smooth and subtle transition uh, from one state to another. Because so you, you do mean get the opposite the... of equinox. He's not an equinox poet, right? Schuyler is a poet of the kind of like transitional. Yeah, no, Schuyler of 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 like of of equinox, right? Of the of the movement from say summer into fall, oh, I see. or right, you right. know, yeah, um, or winter into spring. Those kinds of middle state seasons, yeah. as I think of them, as opposed to like the big primary color seasons, which are the thing in all of its cold, yeah. or all of its um, light. Um, yeah. It also, I you know, I also wonder if, and maybe this isn't to dispute your your bringing the snowman into things, because I think what I'm about to say might apply as well to that poem as to as to this. But I wonder if, in the bright, obvious standing in the cold, standing motionless in the cold, and I shouldn't leave out that word motionless because it helps me here. Mm. Is to say you never want to leave out evidence that helps you listeners <laughs> is is that there's some some sort of reference being made here to death um yeah to a kind of um yeah you know and and the the word that um ends the penultimate line in the poem is the word until right which seems yes. to me like you know in some way grammatically like the word almost right it's like oh. um there's um 
there's a state of um, the current state of affairs, either temporally or otherwise, is going to persist um, until it doesn't. Until it doesn't, or it's going to almost do the thing that it yeah. does, but not quite. Yeah. Um, and in this case, you know, while you know, there's there's one thing that will put an end to the horror of thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely. I mean, this is, and <laughs> yeah. we can bring this episode full circle by talking about the, the corpse in the shroud and the emperor of ice cream. Yeah. Right. That's right. Like that's the, that's right. the, the end of imagery is the, let B be the, finale of seam. Right. And, and the finale of seam and the, the B there is just death. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant reading yeah. of the last of the poem. And it makes, it makes total, it makes total sense. Like until the bright obvious, which is that B being finale of seam is in yeah. fact, not, I think that, you know, a lot of people, that's another one of those lines that's really easy to read incorrectly, which is the sort right. of like, you know, um, only in reality will we be sort of satisfied. It's like, no, 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 no. It's like right. once we're dead, <laughs> right. Once we language stops when huh. you're dead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think that's absolutely here. The bright obvious, which is that, you know, you go back to that line, um, yeah. <clears throat> the the storm of secondary things, right? We are, yeah. that's that's the thing that's real. Yeah. The thoughts that suddenly are real and that the storm stops um, yeah. when it's motionless. Yeah. So, um, so listeners, you know, we'll, we'll, it's, it's funny to me the way we've kind of um, ranged all over the place, but have also found ourselves in talking about the end of this poem, talking about these two early um, great poems of Stevens, which I think of as paired in their own way, but as a kind of um, Northern Stevens and Southern Stevens or something, mm. the, the, um, the snowman and the emperor of ice cream. Yes. Um, the Emperor of Ice Cream, for those who don't know it, is a poem that seems to, I mean, it's, it's it confuses a lot of readers um, right off the bat, but um, it's helpful to think of it as like um, the description of a funeral or something like, or instructions yeah. for a funeral. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll provide links um, to all of these poems um, with the newsletter that goes out with the episode. And this has been a really wonderful conversation to have had with you, Kim, and I'm so glad I'm so glad we managed to um, to make this happen. Yeah. Um, can I ask you maybe to read the poem one more time so we can hear it one last time before Absolutely. all is said and done? Yes, of course. Um, this is something that I do kind of quasi for a living, so I'm more than happy to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> Not quasi. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the, the problem with having like one, like I said, you know, like one foot in the analytical world and one foot in the sort of poetry writing world is that I guess like half my job is reading poems uh, out loud yeah. to an audience. The other half is reading about poems. Oh, but that's, but I, uh, that's, I can't let that go because that brings us to this other fascinating thing that you, we were talking about at the very beginning, which was like, we mean two things by read. Yes. Right. And you do both of them, right? Yes. You, you read your poems and, but you also do readings of poems. Yep. Yeah, um, just yeah. constantly reading. And yeah. one of the things that I love so much about Stevens is that despite himself, he too is constantly, constantly reading. Mm -hmm. So here's Man Carrying Thing one more time. Man Carrying Thing. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. Illustration. A brune figure in winter evening resists identity. The thing he carries resists the most necessitous sense. Accept them, then, as secondary, parts not quite perceived, 
of the obvious whole, uncertain particles of the certain solid, the primary free from doubt, things floating like the first hundred flakes of snow out of a storm we must endure all night, out of a storm of secondary things, a horror of thoughts that suddenly are real. We must endure our thoughts all night until the bright obvious stands motionless in cold. Well, Kim, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for reading the poem again. Thank you. My pleasure. And um, thank you, dear listeners, for making it this far. We will have um, more conversations, exciting ones, coming for you soon. Bye, Bye now.